Peter Hill Explains, where I invite you to join the science teaching conversation with me about Charlemagne, chapter 3, a reading from this uh, beautiful 1940s or 50s uh, book on this area. We're going to do Roman Gaul. So essentially the barbarians uh, uh, came into the Roman Empire, but they sort of came in and missed. They sort of preferred, they could see the Roman Empire, but they didn't understand it. So they sort of settled in the, um, the Badlands and stuff like that. And uh, the Romans saw them as a resource to keep the Roman Empire going and stuff like that. And then you have this curious structure between the Frankish barbarian style um, and uh, sort of a, a brutish sort of um, almost think with their actions. So that trial by combat and stuff like that. The, the sort of games of thrones type of stuff happening uh, with the... Uh, uh, the Roman economy uh, providing all the wealth and material and uh, not really understanding it. What I find fascinating is uh, the sort of emerging role of men and women in, in this, this and people sort of uh, have this idea that men are from Mars or women are from Venus and this type of stuff but really uh, you have something which is a bit odd, a bit structure quite isn't there that is you know you've got a barbaric civilization intersecting with a civilization uh, a sophisticated civilization and uh, the way that men and women go into this is is different um, and it's just that there's sort of like different starting parameters in their thoughts and they come up different ways and it's crazy and people sort of tend to sort of read that um, chaos, this cultural chaos, and extract maleness and feminist, uh, feminine viewpoints going forward. I know I'll try and go like this. Read chapter three, and uh, it has um, a summary of it, which is a beautiful idea, such a beautiful, beautiful idea. And it, to me, it's um, it's it's got he's always got the structure of a um, a web page or, or an online resource in that the summary goes into the summary of the chap table of contents, so you can read through and go through, and you can go through a chapter and you see what's in the chapter. So in this chapter, the social condition of Gaul um, uh, on the accession of Clovis, um, the Apollarinus Sodinus, whatever that means, Gallo-Roman villas, a Visigoth king, a Franken chief, Burgundy society, Saxon pirates. Now you've got to imagine that uh, the England is a nation of pirates. The Saxons, Saxons, that the Saxons were so effectively um, staffed that they had to go to the seas. It's pretty amazing. Okay. And a survey of the social condition of the Flushing province of Gaul before the beginning of the barbarian settlements in it would have revealed the following general characteristics. In the cities of the south of, the south of Gaul, the refined civilizations which the Greeks had planted there still pervaded the languages, the dress, the habits of the people. In the north of Gaul, the Roman type of civilization had formed its institution, language and habits, and had not yet in this pattern, uh, this northern province, deteriorated to such a level of vicious uh, invariation as in Italy itself. So there was something wrong, uh, something warlike still in the Romans that, although they took um, the uh, Greek civilization, they added a bit of their own sort of cunning and warlikeness, the sort of I don't know, almost a theme park. They, they almost produced a Disney World of Greek, but added a bit of um, a bit of death and stuff like that. And so this uh, eventually led, led to chaos. Uh, Aquitina was especially noted among the Gauls 
for its high degree of elegant refinement. So there were these refined places. Now, you've got to also remember that this entire process operated on slaves. So although you could see a building, see something, and the monument's left behind, what's not left behind is the slavery and torture that went into building these civilizations. In the last chapter, we have seen how the Burgundians obtained settlements in the countries east of the Rhone, the Visigoths in Aquitaine uh, and the south. Uh, the Franks gradually spread from the Rhone, um, sorry, from the uh, Rhone to the Somme, leaving north central Gaul, still under the government of Cyrangus. Uh, so he's the, the Roman. So what was left? Uh, it's interesting that uh, uh, the um, English, with their institutions, are still very much um, sort of the the rule of law and the way English England has done is really just a um, element of like the pure Roman Empire. They sort of, it's hard to say, they, they uh, had pure Greek Roman Empire aspects of it, and the more vicious stuff was, they sort of, was displaced by the um, uh, barbarians coming into England, and so the people sort of tended to equate degradation with the barbarians and not with the Romans, but it was really in both. It happens that just at this period of history, a period otherwise very obscure. We are so fortunate as to have one contemporary writer who for the period embraced by his history views the period of these barbarian settlements and for the part of the country over which his personal knowledge extended views the south and west of Gaul. Avenge and Aquitaine gives us a series of pictures society so vivid as to place us in the very presence of the men and events in which he lived. So this, this chapter is going to be mostly this historian talking about it. <clears throat> His own personal history may first be sketched uh, as itself a valuable illustration of the history of the time. Callus Solus Apollaris Sidonaris, that's his full name, that's on. So, uh, I suppose you call him Sidonis, was one of the greatest of Gallo-Roman families of Avenue. He tells us <coughs> that his father, father-in-law, grandfather, great-grandfather, held offices as prefects of Gaul and of the Praetorium and masters of the palace and of the soldiers, that is, the highest officers in the state. At the age of 20, he married the daughter Avitus, the head of another of the greatest of noble families in Gaul. Six years after his marriage, Avitus was raised to the imperial throne of the Baritima, uh, so, or the daughter of Avitus. So he's, he's just lucky. Sidonis followed the imperial father-in-law to Rome, um, and there pronounced by customary poetical um, Pangeric on the first day of the following year in the presence of the Emperor and the Senate and in the recognition of his literary ability a bronze statue was decreed for the young orator in the form of Trajan. So this is one of the interesting things that um, uh, you've got the Romans just killing everyone and they've also got the emergence of the uh, seven ancient arts. So there's four scientific and three trivia. And the trivia is, I suppose, rhetoric, grammar. I think there's another one I've got to remember what the trivia is. So, so it's amazing this goes across. When Avis was dethroned by uh, Richtman, part of Gaul rose in revolt, and Sidonis was involved in the outbreak. So there you go. Let's say, so his father-in-law was... Uh, dethroned by someone called Richtman. So this is interesting because you now have provinces with basically kings in it. Um, he was, however, pardoned by the victorious Margarine, pronounced uh, at Lyon, the poetical eulogium 
of the magnanimous emperor was raised to the dignity of count and held several employments under him. So um, the revolt must have been unsuccessful. Zidonis may not have been killed, but because he was an orator, he was beautiful. He was, he was allowed to go. Remarachan, in turn, was poisoned by Rectima. Far out. What's going on? So. Oh, he was. So, there was someone called Mar Majorian, and he was he was virtuous, and he. Um, Oh, okay, so he's pardoned by this person. He pronounced uh, a did a beautiful thing about the emperor. He's raised to count, but the person who pardoned him was poisoned. Sidonus retired to his country seat of Avitium in Arvogen during the short reigns of Severus. So there's a whole heap of things. So Severus was a emperor, and not a very good emperor, I believe. But when Severus had uh, also been poisoned, and then Athemius had been placed on the throne, the new emperor sent for Sidonus and made him the chief of the senate, prefect of the city, patrician, and the third time he pronounced the political eulogy of an emperor on the first day of the year, uh, 468. So it swings and roundabouts, and so when you, it's your turn, you have to actually delve into the sort of like the pantry of of people, so he's he's lucky. By the end of of 471, he quitted the court and retired to his state as the victim, which he I think he initially tried to do. The see of Claremont becoming vacant, and the clergy and the people elected their distinguished neighbour as their bishop. Um, and we'll do a footnote here, and we find him uh, in friendly correspondence. So this is interesting that the back of the time bishops didn't have to be um, religious; they, they were just uh, political people. Uh, and this is interesting. It's sort of like um, it would be like uh, nowadays we select uh, a retired politician to be the head of an NGO. So. Um, we sort of like get um, Julia Gillard to be head of uh, Blue, Beyond Blue, or something like that, or uh, Jeff Kennett. So, so we do the same sort of thing, but uh, the idea was that you had a political person who could represent stuff. Uh, so we go. I'm just going to read the footnote for this thing of Bishop. The prelates of the 5th century, at least in the most considerable cities, were frequently men of the highest rank and of the greatest wealth, and often men who had not been trained up as priests, but had filled the offices of civil service in the empire. Such at the, at the time, besides Sidnus, Patens and Lyons, Abitus, Vienne, Apollas of Valence, and the last two grandsons of the emperor, the emperor Abitus, when disposed, accepted the bishopric. Uh, which he was not permitted to, uh, long to enjoy. Gallinus was, when disposed, accepted the bishopric of uh, Salonia. It is uncertain whether or not they are identical with Glycerus, who shortly afterwards was Archbishop of Reims. So uh, I think this is where you can actually say there's a, a similarity here. It did things of actually put these high office people in a place where they had occupation, they had they could still occupy, but they weren't going to be political, politically active. That's what I believe. So I think there's something similar nowadays, but it's not within the church. I think you'd have to go NGOs. So we've got the Gallic bishops, and we'll go through the Gallic bishops here. Uh, Lupus of Troyes, Regimus of Reims. I've heard of uh, Remingus of Reims, Patents of Lyons, and others. It was while Sidonus was their bishop in Avenue, uh, was invaded by Eric the Visigoth. So he's so the Visigoths are around. So there's the Gothic people and the Visigoths. It's hard to tell who's who. In AD 
474. And Claremont sustained a siege. His brother-in-law, uh, Exidius, the son of the late Emperor Abitus, and the natural leader of the Overgratus, was the head of the patriotic defence. And the bishop, no doubt, shared in it. So this is going back that bishops actually went to war. I think they had a mace and things like that. So bishops didn't have swords, they had maces. Chess pieces. Chess, which is from that period, had the bishop that you could kill. The consequence was that Uric obtained mastery of sinners. The masterly sinners was exiled. So when Eric came in, the consequence was that when Eric obtained the mastery, Sinus was exiled, but at the end of the year he was allowed to return to his flock, and he died amongst them in the year A.D. 488, the 58th year of uh, 58 years of age, the 18th of his episcopate, and the 17th or 8th year of the reign of Clovis. Now you have to understand, like uh, I'm an, an old fart now, I'm 56, but George Washington was an considered too old and retired at 52 so we are in this amazing age that we are really getting um, so with the advent of glasses so, so you've got to really understand that um, uh, this is before the age of glasses so people became old and unable to do intricate work at the age of 40 you know it's when the eyesight began to decay and so with glasses you've got 40 to 50, and now with this, we're getting another 10 years. We're getting a huge number of productive years for the amount of training we do in these people. This is a beautiful idea. So he's 58 when he died. Uh, besides the three eulogiums, which is what he wrote, which we have mentioned, uh, and which deal with political events of the time, Sidonis had left a collection of his letters written in imitation of those of Cicero and the younger Pliny, and intended for publication, in which we find those sketches of life and manners which are so charming and so valuable. So this is interesting. Um, and uh, it's interesting that uh, often people um, will have a book of letters, and uh, there were plenty and people were good, but letters to Levanicus, which is often quoted, a very, very published thing, is complete rubbish to go through. Okay, we gather in general from the Visigothic elements in the population was smaller in proportion, and its instruction into the introduction into the midst of the Roman population had caused much less determinants and conditions um, condition of the ancient society, and we should have than we should have. Uh, supposed. Many of the great Gallo-Roman families retained their possessions, or large portions of them, and still inhabit luxurious villas. Um, now, I just will go back back onto this. Um, this is the um, uh, the Roman structure of villas and slaves, and remember that uh, villas were structured uh, with an internal garden, cloisters that. The villa is actually the direct descent of an abbey, it's the direct descent of the university, and the political structure of the Roman villas are the political structures today of companies where there are the um, elected class, the class of CEOs who don't know how to do things but are connected uh, and they live in a different moral code to the people below them. And so the people, the flock, the slaves lived in a different moral code. There's a split society, and we still have the same split society today as we go through. Many of the great Gallo-Roman families retained oh, sorry, possessions. Sidonius describes his own villa at some length. He has numerous friends with whom he exchanges visits, and whose pleasant hospitalities he describes. He keeps a, up a considerable literary correspondence, sometimes throws off a jeu de spirit in verse, and altogether gives the impression uh, that the elegant, luxurious Roman life in which we are familiar was still going on in the south of Gaul. 
as if no Gothic kings were keeping his court in Thoulouse. No Gothic garrisons were established here and there throughout the land, and there was no Gothic guests uh, quartered um, upon the estates of the great uh, proprietors. And yet, we are continually uh, coming upon indications that the barbarians dominated the political life of the Roman society. The fresh complexion, fair-haired, blue-eyed giants and their barbaric trappings frequently come upon the scene, and the feelings of higher class of Latins towards them is fully told in a single line, quote, barbarians whom we ridicule and despise and fear. So we ridicule, despise and fear. And you, are they blue-collar, beer-swilling people? I don't know. It's, yeah. Are the barbarians? Is Hogs a barbarian? Paul Hogan. Okay, uh, but with uh, these general remarks uh, and with the occasional note, we will leave the letters of Sidonus and to speak for themselves. In Lib. Two, Ep. One, he gives us this is Library Two, Epistle Letter One. He gives us a long description, clearly imitated from Pliny, of the villa of a victim and estate dearer to him, he says, as being his wife's possession, and than if it had been his own. Behind it rose a high mountain, lower hills on each side of the left plateau, on which the villa stood overlooking a lake two miles in length. He describes the bath built at the foot of the cliff, covered uh, with wood, so that trees cut uh, for fuel almost fall into the mouth of the furnace that heats the water. The bathroom is semicircular asp, uh, into which the boiling water pours through leaden pipes and are yum. According to, um, this is a Latin word, ungeterarium, uh, of the same dimensions. The frigidarium, which would be the cold dip, is so large uh, to rifle those of the public baths, uh, and of its exact proportions, its roof terminates in a comb with its four sides covered with tiles. The interior of the room is lined with cement of extreme whiteness. That's, you know. Uh, so the Romans did have cement. What does the whiteness mean? I don't know in terms of... So they made cement out of volcanic ash, as we make cement out of uh, um, fire station, uh, power station ash. It, uh, has no lascivious pictures, i.e. rude, naughty pictures, no shameless nudities, whose artistic skills is a disgrace to the artist. No actors here in masks and ridiculous costumes imitate the trappings of Blistone. No wrestlers or boxers in indecent attitudes. In a word, there is nothing to shock the most pure. So I think that he's sitting this was obviously Christianized as a bishop. <laughs> Some verses may attract for a moment the attention of those who enter who, without perhaps caring to read them over again, will not regret having read them at once. It's clearly the modest uh, author of verses who thus speaks them. I don't understand. He describes at length the cold bath with its water conveyed from the mountains and poured into the piscina, piscina pool through the lion's head, so lifelike as to almost startle the spectator. Well, there you go. You obviously haven't seen CGI or anything like that. But at that time, the um, the statues were painted. Roman statues are, are painted and dressed. They actually put clothes, like bras on things. Uh, we will only particularise a small dining room with a platform above it, mounted uh, by a broad and convenient stair where one may in summer enjoy the same time the pleasures of the table and the view of the lake. So one of the things we don't realise is that for each one of these things is a whole series of slaves and torches to produce it. Quote, there is a pleasant to watch fishermen engaging in his sport. There is a charming to the ear at midday, the shrill sound of cicadas, and the evening the croaking of frogs, the profound silence of night, the voices of the swan, geese, fowls, and the claws of rooks, saluting thrice the rosy face of the rising dawn, the voice of pimel warbling through the fruit trees, 
prong twitching these are all birds we don't know what they are I don't know what a, a pronong twittering among the e's with the this these mingle some of the sounds of the pan pipes which the watchful tears of our mountain contents against us the nightly concerts amidst the flocks which tinkle the bells as they browse the pastures this is just imagine the barbarians going fuck this it describes another of the country houses so briefly and yet so completely that we extract the entire passage uh, it's south gaul Melbourne property of constance this is person is absolutely like it this is like one of our big you know, skase will be skase rubbing some, and back then we would make skase the head of a um, NGO. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's sort of to understand, and that the um, it's interesting that that Christianity allowed them to be still Christian, sort of as, as, as sort of like a second tier. Keep going. The church allowed them to keep going with the Roman Empire when they were sacking Rome. Uh, situated, uh, this is a quote, situated in the neighbourhood of a city, a river, and the sea, it supplies food for your guests and guests for yourself. Moreover, it offers by its situation the agreeable prospect. First, the house represents high walls disposed with art flowing all, following all the rules of architectural symmetry. Then, it is embellished uh, with a chapel, majestic. Porticos, bars, lastly fields, streams, vineyards, old yards, avenues, and esplanades uh, amount uh, make it a delicious abode. To the richness and elegance, the convenience of the furniture, you have added the treasures of a large library. So uh, while you thus occupy yourself with, you know, I've got uh, some uh, mind here, literature and agriculture, one does not know which is the best cultivated your state or your mind. It's not your state or your mind. I think um, I think these sorts of things there would have been a palace building like as we have a cruise ship company, people would build like land land cruise ships and uh, that there would be people taking money, you know, people would pay money for this. And make a lot of money out of it. Uh, this is my, my view. Other letters give us the pleasant description of the mode of life which cultured Gallo Roman gentry led their country residences. Another letter oh another letter gives us a personal description of Theoretic the Second, King of the Visigoth, the predecessor uh, predecessor to Uric, who is did all that to I don't know. Uh, if I can remember back, he caused things, they overthrew people, and, and he was on the wrong side. And a very interesting description of his daily life, which, longer as it is, is worth quoting since it helps us to realise the manner of the men of these barbarian kings were. Now, it's really interesting that here they have the time and energy to say it's worth going for original source and here it is whereas in modern textbooks they just screw your mind Theodoric is a very noticeable man Theodoric Theodoric is a very noticeable man one who would at once attract attention even from those casually be, who those who casually beheld him so richly has the will of God and the plan of nature endowed this person with the gifts corresponding with his fortunes his character is such that not even the decoration which awaits the king can lessen the praises bestowed upon it. <clears throat> this, uh, can I say, this is sounding like this German epics, which are just unreadable. If you have a whole book written like this, and you're just going, what? What's the plot? Okay. Uh, before dawn, he attends a small suite of officers of the prime, um, of the prime, and his priests, Aryan priests. Now, this is interesting because there are um, uh, you've got the Catholics, the Roman priests, and the Aryan sect. So Christianity was pretty interesting. 
in terms of this Roman-based, centrally controlled Christianity, and there was an Aryan sect. I don't know what the Aryan sect is, uh, but the Aryan sect uh, basically led to the Muslims. <laughs> so they sort of... Uh, so I, I really can't remember what the Aryan sect is. I don't know. I think the Aryan didn't have the the uh, Virgin Mary as a virgin or something, something along those lines. Um, but to speak in confidence, the one can see he observes the reference, uh, uh, this reference out of habit rather than out of devotion. So he just... Well, there you go. I can't say it better than that, does it? Uh, the cares of administration occupy the rest of the morning. An armed attendant stands beside his chair. A crowd of skin-clad guards are so far admitted as to be at hand and so far excluded as not to disturb by their noise so that the murmuring of their conversation may be just heard before the doors without the curtains uh, but with in the barriers. Meanwhile, the audience is given to the ambassadors of the nations. He hears them at length and answers them briefly. Blah, blah, blah. Fuck off. Bullshit. Blah, 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 blah. Blah. No, I don't know. It would be a bit better than that. If anything can be protected, he is slow. If anything can be done, he is prompt. So, just a typical, typical wanker as far as I can see. Sort of just, oh, if it suits me, yeah, we can do it right away. Oh, no, you've got to come back to fill in these forms, stuff like that. It's like, like, like they'll never say no. They just just make it incredibly complicated to eventually spend time. You've got to still keep engaged. When the second hour has come, he rises from his seat. So he spends an hour doing that. Um, he finds time to inspect his treasury, look at my gold, uh, or his stable, look at my, my horse. If a hunt has been ordered, he considers it beneath the royal dignity to carry a bow by his side. But. Uh, if you point out, or if by chance presents a bird or a beast, he puts his hand behind him, his attendant puts the unstrung bow in it, and he uh, uh, he would think of it childish to carry it in a case, and will wish to take it already strung. Therefore, having taken it, he sometimes strings it by bringing uh, the two heads together with his hands, I don't know what the, sometimes putting a knotted end on his heel, he slips the knot to the loose cord and places it in his finger. He takes the arrow, fixes it, shoots at them, first asking him, which one do you want to kill? Thank you very much. Now, yeah, we're ready to kill it. Which one? Um, okay. What a wanker. Okay, sorry. Um, uh, if either makes mistakes, it's more rarely his aim of the archer than the sight of the chooser which is at fault. So, God. If you are asked for dinner, uh, which is a non-feastal days, it's like that of a private person. No panting servants places on the table a tasteless heap of tarnished silver. Oh dear. It is a conversation with the weighty or their people talk of serious things or not at all. The cushions are of the couches and the tapestries of the room are sometimes of purple, which means the Romans, sometimes of fine linen, which means the barbarians. The meals, so it's interesting that they would, you know, let's do it, the king's here, let's put up these tapestries. Uh, the meal, please by skillful cookery, not by costliness. The dishes by their polish, not by their massiveness. The cups and goblets uh, are so sound filled that you are more likely to complain of thirst than incur the complaint of intemperance. What, uh, what shall I say more? You see, the Greek elegance, the Gallic abundance, the Italian quickness, the stateliness of public banquet, uh, the courtesy of private hosts, the effort of royal household, the splendour of a Saturday festival. Now, there's Saturday festival. Goths and Arians kept Saturday as a feast while the Catholics fasted. So, there's actually two um, 
Christianity is the Aryans, and we just, I've got to really work out what the Aryans do. I sort of can remember that quite well. Um, I need not describe since no one is ignorant of it. Let me return to what I undertook. So this is, that is, is a person, a rambling person. He's got no email, no word processor. He just, it's sort of like conversation. And this is great here. The midday sleep is never long. It's often omitted. At this hour, he likes to play tables. So tables is this, um, what they did in the Middle Ages, and we don't know what they are. It is, fortunately. He would think he was waging war, even in playing his men. His sole care is to win. When playing, he lays aside a little of his royal gravity. He bids one play truly as between friends. To tell uh, you what I think, he fears to be feared. Um, then he is amused by the vexation of the loser. He believes that he is not letting him win without the courtesy when he sees him annoyed at his defeat. Mitch, this oh, gonna beat this. Oh, I think I might lose. Oh shit! USS is so bloody good. This is just children, my God. Uh, what will amuse you is that often his satisfaction arising from such insecure causes furthers his success in serious affairs. When then petitions which have been refused before to influential solicitation are granted at once. Just a, an airhead wanker, if you ask me. I am, I myself have sometimes considered myself fortunate in being vanquished since my lost game has won my cause. <laughs> About nine o'clock, the cares of the government recommence. The doorkeepers return, the patrons return, the noise of the vacation goes uh, on into the evening till the royal supper interrupts it. And then it spreads throughout the palace with a patron's <clears throat> and keeps them awake till bedtime. During supper sometimes, though not often, mimic actors are introduced, but no guest is allowed to be wounded by their biting pleasantries. Uh, there is no hydraulic organs. Oh my god, hydraulic organ? No learned and tedious concerts, no lyricists or flutists, no female players of tambourines, or pulsatory. I don't know. I it's getting really get in the Middle Ages, and you're just having a great time. And a female tambourine player comes along. Oh my God, we are just in the second-rate place of the Middle Ages. Just um, okay. The king only is pleased with those strains whose senses soothe the soul as much as their medley. Melody, melody to the ear. When he has risen from the table and the guards of the treasure begin their nightly watch, armed guards are placed at the doors of the palace um, who keep watch during the hours of the first sleep. So, there's a footnote here, I'll read that here. Readers may, if he pleases, compare this to the Imperial Supper of Bargerin minutely and interestingly described and the Roman banquet. So there you go. You, now, you have to really understand the that every excess was not supplied by electric blender. There was, where you have in our days, this has got heaps of electricity going in. All that was supplied by slaves. And there's people managing slaves and people running things off and this is where all the wealth was going and this is where was all the industry this this just didn't happen there were people specialists palace builders specialist things um in the book um 20 he describes a youthful royal race probably frank who had married the daughter of some distinguished roman playing a visit to the palace of his father-in-law quote you are fond of seeing armor and armed men. What a pleasure it would have been uh, to you could you have seen a royal youth, uh, Sigma, decked out in his fashion and splendor of his race, like a bride, groom, or suitor, visiting the palace of his father-in-law. 
his own horse gorgeously uh, carpassoned. Other horses trapped the blazing gems going before the flowing But what uh, most deserved attention was the young prince himself on foot in the midst of the outriders and rearguard, clad in a combination of flaming crimson, shiny gold, milk white silk, and ruddled cheeks, golden hair, milk white skin, repeating these colours on his dress. So he's just such a and dude. You have to remember, um, it's one of these things that Latin translated, it's like this is like Latin translations. Um, get the sort of Latin is Latin, and when you translate, like I think Australian translating Latin would translate it a bit differently from now. Uh, the aspect of the pre, pre, petty kings and companions who accompanied him was terrible, even in their peaceful errand. They had their foot protected with leather, while the calf and knee and thigh were uncovered. Their tunics of various colours coming high up the neck, tight girdled, scarcely which their bare legs. Oh my god, it's a bit like um, uh, back and forth, Black Adder. I think it was Black Adder back and forth, where they had the tunics going up. My godfather, we've got, oh, I don't think we. Oh, this is that chapter, chapter 6 there. Um, their swords, depending, uh, depending on their shoulders, by bolderies and were pressed close to the sides by reindeer skins which are fastened around a clasp. So reindeer skins were the, the basic raincoats of the time. As that part of their adornment which had also a defence their straight uh, their right hand held uh, hooked lances and battle axes for throwing. Their left sides were shadowed by round shields, uh, whose silvery white lustre and golden boss proclaimed the wealth as well as taste. All was so ordered that uh, this uh, wedding procession of splendour of Mars was not less apparent than that of Venus. Oh God! Another letter in a few Jacos verses gives a picture of a curious mixture of barbarous rudeness and Roman refinement uh, that the mixed society presented and makes no secret of feelings of which the Gallo-Roman nobility endured the coarseness of their barbarian masters. We're indebted to Mr. Hodgins, uh, Italy and her invaders, for a poetical version in which he retrains, retrains the metre of the original. This is sort of what I'm saying, that people, um, we don't quite do it nowadays. So it's sort of like the archaeologists of the time, the 1920s, really were guided to unearth to keep that Egypt fever. So I'll, I'll read this, see how much further we've got to go. Or only go, it can't be too much. Oh, it's, it's only a page more, so let's see if we can go. This is the thing. Okay, this is poetry, and I'm not good at reading poetry. Ah, me, my friend, why bid me ear if I had the power to write the light fresh verse fit for nuptial bower. Do you forget that I am placed among the long-haired hordes, that daily I am bound to he uh, hear the stream of German words. schnell. Um, that I must hear and then must praise the powerful grimace, disgust and approbation, both contending in my face, whatever the gormandizing sons of Burgundies may seem, while they upon their yellow hair and rancid butter fling. Well, okay, so you imagine that the, um, so why did you put rancid butter on your hair? Is it made it more yellow, but also it was an insect repellent before being disgusting, unwashed person. Now let me tell you what it makes uh, my liar be dumb. It cannot sound when all around barbarian liars do hum. Oh my god, barbarian liars. The sight of all these patrons tall, each one seven feet high, bloody tall Germans, uh, by poor muse make very thought the six foot meters fly. Oh, happy are thine eyes, my friend, thine 
ears how happy those and oh thrice happy i would call thy disgusted nose this uh not round the that every morn ten talkative machines exhale the smell of onions leeks and all the vulgar greens so these are just the most disgusting gutter you know these these people are vikings that really disgust them i think it's a bit like the japanese japanese see westerners come in and are just appalled by them they think they're stinking all the time. so many giants aren't so tall so fond of trenches playing that scarce aclonus himself that hospitable king would find his kitchen large enough for the appetites they bring they do not these effusive souls declare that they look on the his father's friend of foster sire but alas they do on me so I, this is just appalling schoolboy voice but you get the general gist the the they thought that the the germans were just the worst thing out but stop my muse pull up be still or else some fool will say Sidonus writes lampoons again don't you believe them pray so Sidonus is the Sidonus the person that who's the famous writer I can't remember um but look this is the entire thing you read this these Roman verses and of course the, they've trans already translated the good bits so you get you get a Latin verse and in general it's sort of like I'll put the cat out or remember to close the stable door on Tuesday, something like that. You just would just it's just such, such heavy going reading land. Okay. There's only a paragraph left, but it's a long paragraph. We will only at present allude to one more of these interesting letters, which gives us a glimpse of the Roman military officer causing his trumpets to sound the signal on the departure uh, on board the fleet for with its duties of a soldier and a sailor combined he has orders to coast along the whiting shores of the ocean looking for curved barks of saxon pirates every man of them so saxons are really a high there pirates you know pirates in the roman times my god prevented by franks um, who intervened between them and the empire from taking uh, in the adventures by which the other tribes were carving up settlements to the continents, Saxons took their ships and crossed over to Britain, from which Horus uh, had withdrawn his legions, and they found the kingdom of East and West South Saxons. Then you've got the Angle Saxons. So essentially, that's what happened: is that the um, the uh, the Saxons are a bit hapless, a bit hapless, a bit. Oh, but think I'm like going a boat instead. I can't invade Roman Empire. And look, oh, here's a bit of the Roman Empire cut off left for us. I don't think I'd, I'd, I get the feeling that the Saxons, the Saxons are pretty disgusting, but they're pretty funny people. Saxons, pretty, pretty barbaric. I don't think they were as effective and brutal as the Franks. Others than it seems sailed further westward, making descents upon the coast of Gaul, exercising great cruelty, and not carrying off property and people, but carrying off people themselves as slaves. But the entire world, it's not so the barbarians were the only slave people. The Roman Empire was just run on slaves. So if you can imagine ninety percent of the people around were slaves. What are you doing here? I'm working for the big boss. Stuff like that. Um, and you'd say today, anyone besides the CEO, the last, you know, the last top rank would be slaves. He mentions in his letters before embarking on the return home uh, from one of these plundering expeditions, it was their customs to slay with torches a tenth part of the captors for a superstitious notion that they, that would thus ensure this a safe return voyage. So this is basically. Um, yeah. So, ah, oh, crap. Let's kill ten percent of them for good luck, which of course has got them a bit numeracy. Now the interesting thing is that the Saxon um, uh, counting system went up to eleven. So it's interesting that it's tenth. This is why um, you've got the critical eleven and uh, eleven 
I don't know where uh, his back is, Duffin, it's 13, but 11, uh, so the um, creating 11s from the Saxons um, uh, going across. I would only disclose, we're at the end of this, 28, chapter 3, I would only close by saying that um, this slaying captive people is sort of like just... Uh, I, I think there's something similar to today where uh, we you take over a company and you know, they're slaves and you get rid of a tenth of the company just to keep everyone in order. So you imagine if you got a whole sort of slaves and you know, just by watching terror come up, it just would keep everyone saying, well, I've got a life of slavery, but at least I wasn't one of that, you know, that I'm one of the nine who didn't get killed. So I'm comparatively lucky. So thanks a lot for listening, and I'll see how this uh, goes into um, uh, into um, a podcast. another story comes to a close it's been a pleasure sharing this moment in time with you may you discover truly amazing things understand them and tell others thanks for listening